0: from the Derek Duval production bunker, it's Derek Duvall.
1: Hello, Duval Nation. Hello. Hi, everybody. Hello. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duval Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duval Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. I said we are back, and I mean that literally the Duval's have returned from their whirlwind European vacation. We are back in the saddle, delivering you, my listeners, more incredible content. Before we get into the episode, I want to say thanks again to my last guest, Jim Meskimen. I was completely blown away by how well the episode did, and I hope you got to learn a lot about him, sought out his photography, or you saw clips of him on YouTube. And thank you, Jim, again. You were absolutely fantastic. So welcome to episode 85, and boy, we have a good one for you today. This one took a lot of stars to align, (laughs) that's clever actually, but I was so incredibly grateful that it did. We have on the show the senior astronomer of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, Dr. Seth Shostak is here with us. We'll be covering his career, answering your fan questions, multiple programs that Dr. Shostak is involved with, and so much more. So let's go ahead and get him on out here. Duval Nation, please rise to your feet. And welcome from the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California, SETI's senior astronomer, Dr. Seth Shostak. (laughs) Dr. Shostak, welcome to the Derek Duval Show. How has the weather been out by you today?
2: It's very windy here. Half the neighborhood has been blown into the next county.
1: (laughs) Wow, that is windy. So I start my interviews with the same question, that is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID-19 pandemic?
2: Well, so far, I've navigated it without mishap, but uh, that's not true for everyone I know. I mean, some people have had some bad outcomes, but fortunately, not here.
1: Well, that's good to hear. So it's always fun to start at the beginning. What was it like growing up in Arlington County, Virginia?
2: Well, uh, you know, I didn't know any better, so it it just (laughs) struck me as, Typical, I figured everybody grew up in more or less the same circumstances. Looking back on it now, I realized that Arlington is actually a kind of a very uh, unusual place, a very special place. It was all federal government employees. Uh, everybody who lived in Arlington commuted to Washington. They all worked for the government. At what age did you
1: decide to pursue a career in astronomy?
2: Well, I wasn't, I'm not sure when I decided that, but it may have not been until I got into grad school. I was always interested in astronomy. I mean, I have to say that. I built a telescope at age ten, and uh, you know I was trying to make pictures of the moon, or uh, I wanted to make time-lapse movies, eight-millimeter movies of the moons of Jupiter going around it and stuff like that. I was always interested in astronomy, but I was interested in a lot of things, so it wasn't quite clear what I was going to do until I got to grad school, and then astronomy seemed a lot more interesting than the uh, the other departments.
1: <laughs> do you have any favorite memories from your time at Princeton?
2: I think it was my interactions with my roommates. My roommates were. Uh, they taught me more than the professors did to be really honest. How
1: long did it take you to get your PhD in astrophysics from Caltech?
2: Uh, 5 maybe 6 years. It was a little unclear because it was in a it, it split a year, something like that. The trouble was that after a while it, it became too much fun to go to school there.
1: <laughs> so, we are going to be covering a lot of ground today. As I said earlier, I was super excited to speak to you and unlock your knowledge. Can we start with you explaining the concept behind the ultimate fate of of the universe?
2: Well, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know who's selling it to you, Derek, but the ultimate fate of the universe is uh, simply, uh, you know, trying to predict what's going to happen for uh, to our cosmic home. Now, you know, I mean, it's difficult to predict what's gonna happen to you tomorrow, let alone, you know, gazillions of years in the future. But fortunately, right. the latter is a somewhat easier question to answer because it only really depends on your knowledge of physics. And uh, because in the end, the physics, you know, determines what's going to happen to the universe. And eventually, Mm. all the interesting things in the universe will be gone away. Uh, The stars will all go out, and there won't be any sources of energy anymore. And uh, ultimately, everything is turned into a very thin, very dark, and extremely cold soup. But the the universe keeps going. It isn't that it stops expanding. It uh, just keeps going on forever. Not just for a long time, but forever. I would like
1: to ask a question about that. As I read years and years ago that someone said that human beings do not have the mental power or capacity to grasp infinite space. As for the human brain, something has to have a beginning and an end. Do you subscribe to that
2: thinking? Well, that, that, <laughs> that was undoubtedly uh, written down by a human being. I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's hard, right? It's hard to imagine something that's infinite, that no matter how far you go, for example, there's always more to go. And, you know, there are various analogies and metaphors and so forth to help with that. But in some sense, no, our brains are wired to uh, help us survive on the savannas of Africa. That's when our brains got wired up. So we're good at that. We can do the things that are necessary to survive in that kind of environment. But when it comes to understanding things like, you know, infinities or quantum mechanics or uh, general relativity, things like that, you know, our brains are not really, very well adapted to that. We we get around the problem by, you know, putting it all in mathematical terms, and that helps us to write it down. But it doesn't mean we understand it in any real sense. We don't intuitively feel it. Okay, fair enough.
1: What was it like to get a job at the SETI Institute?
2: Well, uh, for me, it was just, you know, I got a phone call one day, and they said, you want a job here? And I said, okay. So, I mean, it wasn't I mean, <laughs> you know it wasn't that I knew much about the organization. It's just that I was looking for a job at that point. So that's kind of the way it happened. I I had a job, I was working at a uh, part-time at a TV station, a local TV station. You know, when they called up and said, you want a job here? It was a good time for them to ask, because I said yes.
1: So what's it like to work there? Are you well known in the science community that people find out you work at SETI and they buy you drinks at bars or something like that?
2: Well, I I don't don't make a practice of walking into a bar and saying I work at SETI. (laughs) I mean, who knows? I mean, somebody might have a grudge. Maybe somebody, you know, in the bar is owed money by one of my colleagues. I mean, I don't want to be responsible for that. No, I, I usually don't tell people where I work unless they ask. And if they really? ask, I tell them. I mean, gosh, I'm a weight guesser out on the boardwalk. I mean, you know, I, I don't announce that when I go into a bar. This next
1: question is a bit layered. What sort of implications as a society are we in for the day that we make contact and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are not alone in the universe?
2: Well, I think that if we were to, pick, uh, you know, pick up a signal, as you suggest, you know, tomorrow, next week, next year, next decade, whenever, we we're to pick it up. And of course, one of the first things you do is you tell everybody, right? That's actually even in the protocols. That's protocol number that two: tell everybody. You tell them, and I, I don't think that the the public would go nuts. I mean, most of them already believe that there are aliens out there, right? So if they if they heard it on the evening news, a you know, scientist found a signal coming from 827 light years away. And it seems to be a signal from a transmitter indicating that there's intelligent life on a planet in that direction. Right? Well, what would you say? Would you say, my God, I, I can't believe it. Tear your hair out, run around and, you know, uh, antagonize the neighbors. Or would you say, gosh, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I think that that's more the reaction. It, it, it wouldn't be anything much more to that. I mean, it's no danger or anything like that.
1: Do you feel there will be a theological crisis among the faithful population?
2: Well, I don't know. It depends on whom you ask. There have been surveys of theologians, uh, certainly for the major religions that are practiced in this country, and to find out, you know, well, what do they say about it? I mean, suppose we did prove that there's somebody out there. Would that be a crisis for religion? And- Nobody seems to think it would be. I mean, maybe they're naive. I mean, right. it's hard to say, but, you know, even the Catholic Church, which is in the past often had fairly conservative points of view on these things. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, a, a brother in the in the Catholic Church, uh, Father Guy Consolmagno, who's written a book, you know, What Would You Say to an Alien? <laughs> no, I know that's not quite the, the title. It, it's Would You Baptize an Alien? That's, that's <laughs> the title of the book. I asked him, I said, so what's the answer? Do I have to read the entire book? And he said, no, I'll tell you the answer. The answer is, if she asked me to. What is the general
1: mood at SETI with the James Webb Telescope coming online?
2: Well, I think a lot of people are excited about that. Actually, that doesn't affect too many of the projects at the SETI Institute. The James Webb is an infrared telescope, an optical telescope. And one thing that it will do that'll be relevant to SETI is, uh, you know, used to observe planetary systems around other stars, so-called exoplanets, and, uh, you know, if you look at some of these planets, and if you can see them, I mean, not just, you know, see that the star is wobbling because there's a planet around it, but if you actually can see the planet itself, it'd only be a little one-pixel dot, but if you could see that, you could take the light from that one pixel, put it through a prism, and determine whether there was, for example, water vapor in the atmosphere, or oxygen, or something else that might indicate that there's some life on that planet. And of course, that would be interesting.
1: Do you think the general public's expectations are too high, or that they don't fully understand what the telescope is actually designed to do?
2: Well, I don't really know. I haven't had anybody tell me what they think it'll do. But (laughs) they occasionally ask, yeah, I think that the public may have, you know, expectations that are not actually terribly (laughs) realistic, simply because For many people, all they know about the James Webb telescope is that it's the successor to the Hubble telescope. So, you know, if they were impressed by all the photos made by the Hubble telescope, they figure James Webb is going to make really much more spectacular photos, and maybe they'll be able to see, you know, continents or or forests or who knows what on some distant planet. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's not true, but, you know, they, they don't know what to expect, I suppose.
1: So when I told my listeners that you were going to be on the show, they sent in some fan questions to ask I chose the most intelligent of them, and if it's okay, I have a few fun ones to ask you. The first one, again, is a fun one. How much reverence do astronomers have for the book and the film, Contact?
2: Reverence? (laughs) They're down on their knees and beginning to pray. Well, uh, I mean, look, you know, at the SETI Institute, it it actually pictures what we do, I mean, you know, in a dramatic way. And it, it is a fictional piece, after all. But Carl Sagan, who wrote the book on which the film was based, he obviously knew quite a bit about SETI. So, uh, you know, it's it's more accurate in many ways. It's more accurate than any other sci fi film that deals with finding the aliens. There's that. But on the other hand, and the bottom line is that, you know, Jody wants to get in touch with the aliens. And it turns out, you know, they're, they're her, her dad. I mean, I don't know <laughs> if that would actually happen. But, you know, so, so some of it is very accurate, actually. But the rest is fiction. And that's fine. I mean, it, it they they paid it more attention to details and getting things right than any other sci-fi film that I know about. And uh, that's because, you know, I mean, I was an advisor for the, for the film and several of my colleagues were as well. So, you know, they could call up and ask us questions and we would give them the answers from Hollywood standpoint, getting it right from the standpoint of the science is not particularly interesting. What's interesting to them is that you have a film that's, sufficiently compelling that a lot of people go and see it. Right. So, uh, you know, getting it right is just icing on the cake, maybe.
1: Do you think it inspired a new generation of astronomers?
2: I don't know. Uh, I haven't met any that said, you know, it was seeing contact. that changed me from <laughs> my original intention to, you know, work at a Jiffy Lube, and I decided to go into science instead. I, I, I haven't heard that from anybody, but on the other hand, I will say this, that if you actually grab the next 10 astronomers you run across and ask them, well, what got you interested in this field anyhow? uh, Eight of the 10 will say movies. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe that's true for contact too. I, I wouldn't be surprised.
1: Earlier, you mentioned the protocol. Now, this next question is built on that. What is the basic protocol if first contact is made?
2: Yeah, well, the protocol is based on the assumption that we pick up a signal right mm-hmm. it it's It's not a protocol to deal with this the situation that somebody lands right, right. If, if If they land in downtown Cincinnati, you have a different kind of protocol, but mainly <laughs> go to Cleveland uh, it, it, the protocol for picking up a signal you know the, it was originally formulated back in the days of the Cold War because the only other people besides the Americans who were doing SETI experiments were the Soviets, and so it was just to sort of minimize the possibility of conflict about, uh, you know, who gets credit and all that sort of stuff. But all it says is, you know, check out the signal that you think you've picked up, make sure it's for real, and tell everybody, and then don't broadcast anything back without having some sort of international consultation. So mm-hmm. no particular country, you know, sort of monopolize, monopolizes the, uh, the communication line to the alien, But of course, in reality, I don't think that the protocols, even though I was in charge of the committee that was <laughs> to to revise them, I I don't know that they're terribly valuable, uh, mm-hmm. because in you know in the heat of the moment, I mean, if you actually pick up a signal that looks like it's for real, you don't have any time to worry about protocols. Your your phone is ringing off the hook because the media are calling you up. That that's what yeah. really happens.
1: Okay, last fan question: When you watch shows like Star Trek, The Big Bang Theory, or even Star Wars. Do you roll your eyes and get annoyed by it?
2: Uh, only if there are too many commercials. No, come on. I was a big fan of uh, sci-fi films as a kid. When I was uh, 10 years old, I was going to them every weekend. And uh, they all had pretty much the same plot. You know, some atomic test in, in Nevada would produce a, some sort of strange monster, a giant spider or ants that were eight feet high at their shoulders or whatever. And, uh, <laughs> you know, these, these monsters would all head for Los Angeles. Because after all, if you're gonna if you're gonna be a monster, you know Los Angeles is a city you want to flatten first, and they would do that. Uh, they would you know wreak havoc and destruction. But despite the fact that they all had this as a plot, it uh, they were still interesting to me as a kid. And uh, so yeah, I was a big fan of them. They they would portray aliens occasionally, uh, but aliens were mostly guys in rubber suits or, or something else very simple because these were all low budget films. You know, they, they were kind of interesting, but they were hard to believe.
1: I watched the Criterion release of the 1953 War of the Worlds not long ago. Man, does it hold up well.
2: That, that's a good one. That was made by George Pal, P-A-L. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was a, a puppeteer, actually, from Hungary. And he came to Hollywood, and he made his way with special effects. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, he was flying the, the Martians through the streets of Los Angeles <laughs> on wires. But, of course, yeah. they had to frame by frame. Uh, <laughs> take out all the uh, wires with a paintbrush. You know, this is before you had digital mm-hmm. effects, so it was all done analog, and it's amazingly good. I uh, that still—it was so much better than the remake, which is a shame. The, the mm-hmm. remake had—I uh, I guess that was, yeah, that—that yeah, that was disappointing, which was a shame mm-hmm. because it's such a good story. I just
1: mentioned that Criterion that had the War of the Worlds. They did a complete 4K digital remaster, took out the wires, updated the audio. It was. Absolutely incredible.
2: Well, maybe I yeah. should try and see that. I, as I say, you know, I've, I've watched the original many times. As you say, it really holds up because I think part of it is that George Powell was smart enough not to show the Martians, you know, the guys that were inside those spacecraft that they brought to Earth, not to show them till well into the film. Right. To keep up the suspense. You know, as soon as you see the monster, you kind of say, oh, well, it's not so bad. I mean, my <laughs> next door neighbor was uglier than that thing.
1: I want to talk briefly about one slash two zero one seven U one or Omuramora. What was the buzz around the scientific community when it was discovered and its bizarre activity when it was being tracked?
2: Well, uh, Omuramora was picked up uh, by one of the telescopes in uh, Arizona. No, it wasn't. It was picked up by a telescope in Hawaii. That's why it has that Hawaiian name, Omuramora. All you saw was a dot, but that dot moved from night to night. In other words, it was something moving relatively quickly because it's nearby, it seems to move rather quickly. And it was given this Hawaiian name, mua which means pathfinder or something like that. Most astronomers that I know, both in Hawaii and elsewhere, said, well, it's interesting because on the basis of the orbit that it has, they could use 17th century physics and figure out that this was not something from our solar system. This came from somebody else's solar system, which was interesting. The first time anything big was found from somebody else's solar system. But there was shortly thereafter a paper written by Avi Loeb at Harvard and uh, some of his colleagues saying that they thought that there was a decent chance that a Muamua wasn't just an asteroid from somebody else's solar system, but that it was perhaps some sort of spacecraft or Mm -hmm. a, a chip off a spacecraft or something that was, if you will, artificially produced. Now he still maintains that that's a likely scenario, You know, not not many people agree actually, particularly people who study asteroids. They say, look, it's an asteroid. But that isn't very interesting. More interesting would be if it weren't an asteroid. But it has the colors of an asteroid. It has, you know, it's this reddish color. And that's kind of what you expect from an asteroid. So uh I you know, I don't know too many people other than those connected with Avi Loeb who think that it's anything other than an asteroid. But on the other hand, we're not gonna find out because we can't catch up with it, and it's it's not gonna come back here for (laughs) maybe 100,000 years or more. I mean, who knows? So uh, all you can do is say, okay, well, if there was one that wasn't an asteroid, maybe there'll be more. And we've already found at least one more.
1: Okay, Duvalnish, and we're going to go ahead and take a small break, but we'll be right back with the conclusion of this amazing interview with the SETI's senior astronomer, Dr. Seth Shostak. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink? Take some super nice, long, deep breaths. You know, Cluzo style pay attention to two friends of the show and we will be right back
0: that's serena over there and that's naomi and we are the hosts of weird mythic podcast yes we are our show weird mythic covers stories about cryptids which is what brought us together to create the show but we also like to talk about anything paranormal and strange that happens in the world We post episodes every Sunday on different topics, and we would love to have more listeners. We're on all podcast platforms, and you can find us on all social media sites as well. Give us a listen, send us some personal stories to share on the show, and we will love you forever. Yes, we will. We would love some personal stories, some cryptid encounters, and we hope that you listen and tune into the show. You can listen to Weird Mythic Podcasts wherever you get your podcast fixed.
1: In today's story, Elena tried taking a magic potion which she thought would help her. Well, she found out there aren't any magic potions. And you know what? There aren't any magic drugs either. Anytime you take one from anybody but your parents or your doctor, you're taking a very big chance. You're gambling with your health, maybe even your life. Drugs don't make your problems go away. They just create more. Teachers. Do you ever have these feelings, or have been told these things?
0: Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own, with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts!
1: Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you.
0: Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy, it is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on, Warriors. We've got this. What if I told you about a group of elite college athletes who compete in 35 different sports at one of the toughest institutions in the nation? For them it's not about name image and licensing or any other kind of major endorsement deal because at the end of the day their ultimate goal is to serve their country this is carl darden i'm the host of navy sports central and i'm talking about the athletes who attend the united states naval academy these young men and women represent the best our country has to offer they compete at a high level on both the national and world stage and their stories have mostly gone untold i'm here to change all that so please Join me, Carl Darden, on Navy Sports Central, wherever you get your podcasts to learn more about these incredible athletes and our nation's future leaders. Janay Sergio, arriving.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode eighty-five of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back into it with the conclusion of our interview with the senior astronomer of the SETI Institute, Dr. Seth Shostak. With the way science is continuously evolving, in your professional opinion, when do you think man will set foot on Mars?
2: Man will step foot on Mars? Well, you yeah. could do it you could do it in, in in fewer than 5 years if you really wanted to, but you have to write a bigger check. If you if you want to do it, you know, sort of methodically and that's sort of NASA's approach maybe not Elon Musk's but that's NASA's because right. they don't want to kill people you know then it might I mean he, Elon Musk says it'll be done within a handful of years I don't even remember his latest uh, projection but right you know it's it, not as long as a decade that's for sure mm-hmm. and the real problem is going there if you if you were willing to find somebody who just wants to go one way right you know we could have them there in seven months right <laughs> but, but if you want somebody who who gets a round trip ticket, then it takes longer because now you got to take enough hardware with you to, you know, bring bring the human back. You mm-hmm. have got to gotta make some fuel on the surface of Mars. I mean, it becomes much harder if they if they require a round, a round trip. I mean, if it were national priority, if you know, we knew that if we didn't do this, somebody else was going to do it
1: like another cold war space race.
2: Yeah. If it was a space race mm-hmm. kind of circumstance, yeah. everything would be sped up. Of course. Yeah, it would be fun to go to Mars. I mean, uh, there, there, are,
1: there are things to see on Mars. Can you tell my listeners about Big Picture Science?
2: Sure. Big Picture Science is a uh, weekly science radio show and podcast that uh, we put together at the SETI Institute. I put it together with a couple of folks. Uh, Molly Bentley is a co-host, and uh, she was a reporter a long time, for a long time for the BBC. And then there are other people who have worked in radio, too. I'm the only one that hasn't worked in radio, actually. <laughs> but we pick, a, we pick a topic, you know, that we think is of interest to more than just us. And, uh, you know, it's not like some radio shows in science, they they go from topic to topic. And we don't do that. We try and just do one topic, but we'll have three interviews with people and, and talk about things. And, uh, you know, being capable of making a one-hour show every week during COVID hasn't been easy because we can't get into our studio, which will be set up in our new uh, rental space. So we have to do it from home. And it's rather difficult actually to have good audio quality for everything when you're working from home. That's hard, but anyhow. Mm.
1: You also host Skeptic Check, which debunks certain ideas such as astrology and UFOs. Can you please tell my listeners more about it?
2: Yeah, well, we found that uh, on the order of once a month, we wanted to do a show that Attacked such things as, uh, you know, Bigfoot, right, or ghosts, or UFOs, aliens come to Earth to abduct people, stuff like that. Stuff that we consider okay, this is pseudoscience, or that, you know, vaccines cause autism, stuff like that. So we, once a month, we would do a show, and we still do actually, that uh, it takes some, if you will, some some belief by the public. I, I don't know if I should call it a belief, but it usually is. Uh, we're doing one. This next week about Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz is a very accomplished uh, physician, but some things he says are a little bit questionable. <laughs> so, so we're we're looking into that, you know, just to see. Well, you know, what can you believe? What can you not believe? And does it really matter what he says? Uh, those kinds of things.
1: What is the one theory about extraterrestrial life that exists that you claim to be complete? You know, BS.
2: Well, probably that it's visiting Earth. I think that that is indeed cleanser for pigs definitely hogwash i i yeah i I think so because there isn't any good evidence for that there's a lot of people very you know hung up on that i mean one third of the population believes that's true like roswell well roswell or you know the the aliens have come to earth just to harass our navy pilots right (laughs) and it's you know okay maybe they've done that but that's you, you, you got to have evidence It's certainly a lot better than anything we've seen so far. Right, uh, And I, it would surprise me if they did that because, you know, I mean, this is a long way to come just to terrorize some top guns in the Navy.
1: And that leads us into my next question. And I had myself had to do some reading on Google on this one. For those who have never heard it, can you please explain the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, which you are indeed a fellow for?
2: Yeah, I uh, am. Yeah, yeah. They, they don't ask much of me, but they don't even ask me to pay. <laughs> pay my my subscription fee for the magazine, but this is a skeptical organization. There are a couple of skeptics organization actually in the United States. There are two, and this one was uh, founded by Gosh, oh Paul Kurtz. I think I got the name right, Paul Kurtz. But also with the amazing Randy, right? Randy was a mentalist, a, a magician, a performer, but he did you know mental trips. Uh, tricks in the sense that he would ask you to think of a number and then write it down and you know stuff it in a cigarette box or something like that and (laughs) you know he'd pull it out of his out of his left ear and read it and is that the number and sure enough that kind of thing but at some point he got interested in the fact that you know his his act was in a way too good because a lot of people said my god this guy's he's a miracle worker that he can do this right and he would say to them in you know, sort of backhanded way through interviews he say, well, actually, you know, I'm a magician. This is all an illusion. I'm not really able to read your mind, that kind of thing. But people didn't believe him. They, they thought that, you know, he could. And uh, as a consequence, he, he got into the whole sort of, if you will, debunking biz. Uh, and he had a one billion dollar bet for anybody who wanted to take him up on it. If say they could, you know, actually perform any of these things, you know, these talents that were attributed to him. Uh, you know to, to see if they really were in some ways miracle workers could they really do remote viewing could they you know prove it some way so mm-hmm. he, he's unfortunately he died about a year ago but uh he he was really very very good so he started these uh the, the this organization and they get together for meetings and they have a magazine and you know they investigate things like haunted houses or whatever mm-hmm. and uh you know it's it's great except that i i don't know that it's reduced the belief in pseudoscience in the country at all because the people who you know want to believe in pseudoscience they're not dissuaded by the fact that you know the amazing randy says it's all bogus yeah, they're going to believe it anyhow so in a way you know they're just sort of amusing themselves i hope not but i i have the feeling that's true i mean hmm. you could take something like vaccines cause autism right there's no medical evidence for that at all but there are people who you know insist on believing it yeah and you could say well that's not so good because You know, they might not get their kids vaccinated and that could lead to untoward consequences. But if uh, people want to believe it, I mean, it's hard to hard to talk them out of it.
1: You mentioned building telescopes. Now, we had last year Star Trek actor and astronomy enthusiast Tim Russ on the show. He was talking about the evolution of telescopes that can be purchased by the average person. How impressed are you with how far telescopes have come?
2: Well, uh, like him, I, and and I have met Tim Rose. He seems to be a very nice guy, actually. Uh, I, I, I'm i impressed as well. Now, mind you, I don't have one. right? <laughs> not a whole lot of point here. I'm here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, you can go out at night and, you know, you can see the moon and some of the <laughs> planets, but you don't see much else. I mean, you never see the Milky Way here. The one time I ever saw the Milky Way from here in the Silicon Valley was uh, when there had been a big earthquake and uh, the power was knocked out to all the cities around the bay. (laughs) Then I could see the Milky Way. But, uh, you know, so I'm not in a place that's really good for astronomical viewing. And and to be honest, I'm also a little afraid of it. If I bought myself a good telescope, right, I I would want to use it. And so you had to schlep it, you know, somewhere dark and throw Mm -hmm. it in the back of your car and take it somewhere and set it up. It might be cold and all that. And I thought uh, maybe I'll just go online and look at these uh, galaxies online but uh, but they are incredible in fact I I went to uh, some guy's house in the Central Valley of California uh, down near Fresno I think is where he was he was a, a pediatrician he was a you know a doctor for kids and I I guess that that's a well-paying job because he had several hobbies that were really expensive. He had mm-hmm. all these craniums, I mean, you know, skulls from, uh, you know, Neanderthals and so forth, a lot of the, if you will, the you know, the prototypes for Homo <laughs> sapiens. I mean, he had the real deal. He had yeah. them. He also had dinosaur eggs. But the other thing he was interested in was uh, astronomy. And he had converted his house to have a dome at one end. So he had a dome and then he has a really you know, first-class telescope there, and he would make photos of, uh, you know, galaxies, nebulae, planets, stuff like that. Now, as I say, I my PhD involved studying galaxies, so I had some photos that were made on Mount Palomar of these galaxies, so they're pretty good. I mean, that was the biggest mm-hmm. telescope in the world at the time, but this guy's photos of, of those galaxies were better. I mean, you know, as an amateur, he could make better photos today than Mount Palomar could have made, you know, 34 Hmm. years ago so I guess they've come a long way actually it's not so much that the telescopes have come a long way it's really in the uh, the sensors and and, you know in the old days you would use film but film is very insensitive so only 1 or 2 percent of the photons the light that actually hits a photographic plate or a piece of film actually does anything 98% of it doesn't do anything but if you have a, a modern digital camera then in fact Uh, You know, it's a much higher percentage. It's 30, 40, 50, 60, 70% of the photons actually do something. So that's been the the big step forward.
1: How many galaxies are there off the top of your head, if you do know, in fact?
2: Well, I mean, there have been some photos made mostly by the Hubble Space Telescope, where they'll just aim it at some nondescript part of the sky, someplace nobody has anything of interest to see, right? And then, and then they'll just open the shutter for 100 hours, right? I mean, they have to do this over the course of, uh, you know, maybe some time, but they may not do it all at once. But 100-hour exposure of just a little tiny bit of the sky, you know, really small bit of the sky. And then what do you see? Well, you, you might see a star or two, but mostly what you see is just a field full of these blobby things called galaxies. Mm-hmm. And you can see galaxies that are literally billions of miles, sorry, forget miles, billions of light years away and, and and even 10 12 billion light years away the universe is only 13 billion years old so you know you're not going to see anything farther than about 13 billion light years but you you can see these things the, the universe is just filled with these galaxies and uh, you know the estimate is that if you could do this experiment all night every night and you know just try and map all the galaxies that your telescope could possibly show you you would count on the order of between 200 or 300 or 400 Billion galaxies, wow. each with 200, 300, 400 billion stars, and 10 <laughs> times that number of planets.
1: Which leads us into your article on discovering Planet Nine. Now, if it exists, do you have an idea where it is hiding?
2: Yeah, I don't. But there are people who are still looking for it. Actually, the, these people are mostly down at Caltech in Southern California. They, you know, they were looking for it a couple of years ago already, and they didn't find it, then, and they haven't found it since, even though they thought they would find it. Within six months. So the question Mm. is do they just keep looking until they find it, or is there something wrong here? You know, the assumption is that this planet nine, I mean, there have been lots of planet nines in history, but that this planet nine is pulling on some of the other members of the outer solar system, you know, asteroids and so forth that are out there and perturbing their orbits. And on that basis, you can sort of get an idea of where this Planet Nine might be. It might be as large as the Earth, right? It could be a relatively big planet, but they haven't found it yet. And believe me, they, they've been looking. So I don't know, um, you know, you may have a great name for it, but it's premature.
1: If indeed SETI does make contact, you'll all go down in history with the likes of Lindbergh or Armstrong. This is this is a silly question, but do you all have your Nobel Prize speeches ready to go?
2: Well, I do. I have it right here. And I was just about <laughs> to translate it into Bosnia-Herzegovinian dialect, actually. No. <laughs> yeah. We'll go down in history like Al Capone, you mean? I yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, obviously the first group of people, and it probably will be a group of people, to find a signal that proves that there's cosmic company out there, they they will go down in the history books. I think that's fair to say.
1: As we begin to wind down this interview, what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures and your
2: research online? Well, they shouldn't follow, they should lead. But (laughs) let's see. Uh, Well, clearly they should just go to the SETI Institute website. That's just SETI.org. It's a nonprofit organization, just SETI.org. And they'll find lots of stuff about the sort of work that is done at the SETI Institute. The other thing is you've Obviously notice because you've mentioned a couple of my articles, I write fairly frequently for uh, various publications, including NBC online and some other things. So they they can do that. And I have a couple of books out there so they they can do that. Or just have them go online and look up big picture science and uh, tune in and then, uh, you know, send abusive letters to the show complaining about the puns.
1: I am my interviews with my favorite question. And this might hit differently based on your profession. Uh, The question is, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you want to say to the people of Earth?
2: (laughs) Attention, Earth. What you do with your own planet is, well, what do I say to Earth? I, I, I don't have anything terribly profound to say to Earth, except, and I do say this to young people, you know, they are very privileged, not just because, you know, they live in a in a in a world where there are a lot of possibilities that didn't exist even a hundred years ago. But the other thing is that they're also privileged in the sense that I think we're going to find some evidence that there's, you know, other life, not just life, but intelligent life out there. And no previous generation could have done that. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're the members of the first generation that could actually prove that aliens are not just a feature of the, you know, the the weekend on tv or in the movies but that they are actually a feature of the cosmos
1: dr show thank you ever ever so much for taking the time out of your absolutely incredibly busy schedule to talk with me and my listeners this one goes in the hall of fame for me the absolute pleasure to speak with you
2: <laughs> well thanks derek and get in touch again
1: thank you again and just like that Duval nation we come to the end of episode 85. <laughs> I want to thank the incredible Dr. Seth Shostak for being so gracious with his time. Please go online, check out all the good work he is doing. And like I mentioned in the intro, I was so glad that he and I were able to get together to talk. What a great interview. Like I mentioned as well in the intro, I have returned with Mrs. Duvall from seeing all of my family in South Wales. Plus, to celebrate our 10th wedding anniversary, her and I went to Rome, Italy for three days. We got to see the Parthenon, the Colosseum, walk around the Vatican, so much more. I have posted some photos with many more to come over on my Instagram page, at Derek Duvall Show, so be sure to head there to see some great photographs. I have a photography bug, so I always like to produce high-quality pictures. So if you see it, I guarantee you're going to be impressed. Have you had a chance to check out our store on Tee Public? We have everything from magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have a carefully curated collection of T-shirts, put together by myself and Mrs. Duval. So be sure to go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Look on the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Public. And like I always say, I want to thank T Public for being such great partners. September is Suicide Prevention Month. As someone who has struggled with mental health in the past, I encourage everyone who might be going through a significant mental health crisis to reach out to a family member, a friend, a trusted doctor, or if that's your thing, a religious leader, and have them help you get the immediate attention and help that you require. You can also contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Hotline. But please remember that suicide is a permanent solution to a very temporary problem. So on behalf of the entire team here at The Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, be safe, be kind, and try to make a small monetary donation to your local animal shelter or rescue group. You'll be amazed at how far such a generous donation can go. Nusta, God bless, and
0: see you next time, Planet Earth. This has been a recording of the Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, to explore past episodes and find links to purchase merchandise. Please subscribe to our social media channels on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Derek Duval Show.